Hello, I'm Dr. Louise Newson, and welcome to my podcast. I'm a GP and menopause specialist, and I run the Newson Health Menopause and Wellbeing Centre here in Stratford-upon-Avon. I'm also the founder of the Menopause Charity and the Menopause Support App called Balance. On the podcast, I will be joined each week by an exciting guest to help provide evidence-based information and advice about both the perimenopause and the menopause. So today on the podcast, I have two people with me in the studio, which is doubly exciting. So I have two people that I hold in very high respect, actually, as well. So I'm actually a bit nervous here. So I've got in front of me Michael Mosley, who I have known and respected for many years, and his good wife, Claire, who works very closely with him that I think a lot of people maybe and I didn't till recently quite how closely she works and helps (laughs) with his work. So thank you so much for joining me today. Pleasure. Great to be here. Oh, thank you. So I don't know whether you both know, but if I wasn't doing menopause, which takes up a hundred and plus percent of my time, I would actually be doing something in nutrition because it's one of the, well, one of the many things actually that we're not taught at medical school that would be very useful to know. And I don't know about you both, but I certainly didn't know what I do now about nutrition. And I thought fats were bad. I went to medical school in the 80s. So there was lots about do not eat fat and (laughs) how wrong we were really. So things have changed, but there's so much confusion, isn't there, out there. And And it's really worrying for everyone, but obviously I particularly worry about menopausal and perimenopausal women who are often really, really struggling with their diet because of the metabolic changes that occur. And then they find that this overwhelming information that often isn't right is very scary. So you've done some great work, but before we talk about all the work you're doing now, Can I just unpick a bit and just find out how you got into what you're doing now? Sure. So um, Claire and I also um, graduated from medical school in the mid 80s. And in fact, we met at medical school in 1980, which would be 42 years ago. (laughs) Quite a few years ago, yeah. So was that the beginning of medical school? Yes, um, very early on. In fact, on the first day, we were at Royal Free, and it was about 50-50 male and female, and there were about 100 of us in the air, and the dean said that statistically, four people in the room who had never met each other would marry. And so there you go. (laughs) Yeah, because I met my husband in Freshers Week, actually, in the 80s, so uh, not realising that I would still be with him (laughs) many years later, but... (laughs) So um, that was kind of when we met, and rather like you, uh, none of us were taught anything or, frankly, were that interested in nutrition. And I think probably the precipitating event in a funny way in both our lives was in 2012 when I got diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Mm. And my GP, understandably, said, let's start you on medication. And I said, I'm not sure I want to go that road because my dad had had diabetes around the same age and had then died of complications, Mm. things like um, heart failure and also early signs of cognitive decline Mm -hmm. at the age of 74, which is pretty young. So I thought this is not good. And that's when I um, made a Horizon program with myself as the subject called Mm -hmm. Eat Fast, Live Longer. Yeah, it was an amazing program. I remember sending Claire an email from the States where I'd been talking to some of the academics there. And I said, I think this is going to be huge. Mm. That was kind of 
when, if you like, I invented the 5-2 diet. But I was also fascinated by the link between diabetes and weight, which people were not talking about. And so, yeah, I sent Claire an email saying this is going to be huge. And um, I think it has been, isn't it? It has been. So, and you like, so, the impact of it, I think. Yeah, and it's amazing. So let's just spend a second talking about diabetes because there might be people who don't know. I speak to a lot of people who have hypos, they feel a bit lightheaded and they say, I want to be tested for diabetes. And we know that diabetes is raised sugar, isn't it? If you're untreated, you're going to have raised, but there's type one and type two. So do you mind just explaining the difference to people? I'm sure. In fact, there are lots of other variants, including, mm. um, you know, um, linked to pregnancy. But um, the primary ones are type one, type two, type one tends to be more uh, what used to be known as a sort of young person's disease as a genetic element. Although type two, which is more closely linked with central obesity is also seen in younger and younger people. In fact, I was talking to a pediatrician recently who said she'd seen it in a four-year-old because Mm -hmm. um, we have increasingly obese kids. And Mm -hmm. what is very clear now is that type 2 diabetes, which is like 90 to 95% of all cases of diabetes in the UK, is primarily caused by too much fat around the tummy, visceral fat, goes into your liver, goes into your pancreas, clogs them up. And conversely, losing that fat through a rapid weight loss diet, which has been pioneered largely by Professor Roy Taylor up in Newcastle, has been shown to uh, rapidly reverse that. And mm. in my case, I lost about nine kilos in eight weeks. So that's Gosh, well very rapid, isn't it? It is. And uh, my blood sugars went back to normal where they have stayed ever since. Though Claire has been obviously keeping an eye on me just to make sure I stay on the diet. <laughs> sweet tooth to contend with yeah so i don't think either claire or i had the slightest clue really about the fact that type 2 diabetes could be reverse mm. put into remission or indeed i would have said been that interested in nutrition but claire got very engaged after that and with her patients as a gp yes i mean it, it was at a time when we just said eat less and move more and that went on for years and years mm. and years And it wasn't until I saw what happened with Michael that I realized quite how powerful the impact could be. But it's still, you know, I've been working with patients eight years. And initially, the really people just thought every person who managed to get their blood sugars down, reverse their diabetes was an exception. Yes. But eventually, I think over the last five years, it's now become very much pushing at an open door. People get it. They know much more about it. They are much better informed, I think, about diet and the impact it can have. And I'm going to say there's a very clear link with the menopause in the sense that um, as women go through the menopause, it doubles their risk of developing metabolic Mm. syndrome, Mm. which is a combination of the large waist, high blood pressure, high blood sugars, as you know, and high blood fats. So that whereas type 2 diabetes is relatively rarer, in um, women before the menopause, it becomes increasingly common. And that seems to be largely to do w- with the fact that as women go through the menopause, there are greater risk of laying down visceral fat. The fat shifts, if you like, yes. towards the abdominal area, and that's the high-risk fat. Yeah, and it's so interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of women, myself included, actually, when I was perimenopausal, I'd look down at my waist and I'd be driving a car and think, oh, gosh, where's that come from? And and this sort of midline change is often because the body 
needs oestrogen, doesn't it? So the fat cells produce not really a nice type of oestrogen, oestrone that can be quite pro-inflammatory, but it's all it's got. And then, as you quite rightly say, Michael, the metabolic changes occurring not only increase our risk of type 2 diabetes, but also cardiovascular disease, dementia, osteoporosis, and even clinical depression are thought to be inflammatory diseases now. So it's really crucial that we not just wait till we've got type 2 diabetes and then look at our weight, but it's trying to reduce metabolic syndrome and everything else as well. And certainly one of the first line treatments for type 2 diabetes is lifestyle. And I don't know about you both, but I've certainly had patients in front of me diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And it's really difficult in a 10 minute consultation as a GP to talk to them about how they need to stop smoking, that they've smoked for the last 30 years, how they've got to reduce their alcohol, but more importantly, to really change their diet. And in three months, it's not much time for a lot of people when they've had 20 years of eating, you know, takeaways and goodness knows what. So What's your advice? How do you start? Because it's the hardest thing is starting a change, isn't it? I think in terms of starting a change, it's asking people what difference it's going to make to them. How will their life change? How would they see it in three months' time? Mm -hmm. Really, the kind of issue is, is, you know, how much of a difference it can make to how they feel, to their mental health. And and it's often recommended to tell people that they're going to be doing it and making those changes. But it's with rapid weight loss, it's incredibly rewarding for people Mm. because they see the change very quickly. They feel better, their mood improves, and it becomes a sort of self-fulfilling thing. You know, for most people, it sounds making, you know, dietary changes it sounds challenging putting people on a sort of lower calorie diet, but when they see the impact, it really does, you know, motivate them. Mm. Um, we um, have written a number of books together, including uh, the Fast Eight Hundred, and we have a website called thefast800.com. So if you go there, mm. then you can get some pretty detailed information because I think success with any weight loss regime is largely about the planning it's about the understanding as well why am i doing this uh, what are the benefits what are the pitfalls and really getting to grips with it before you begin rather than sort of dashing madly into some crazy diet so it's about getting everyone else on board you know your family on board your partners your friends so they're going to support you because these can be quite tough And in the books, we detail a lot of the scientific research Mm. as well. So you kind of know that there's something behind it. But it is about things like, as Claire saying, why are you doing it? Listing the reasons, having good, compelling reasons for wanting to do it. And um, also, as I said, recruiting as many friends and neighbors or whatever to take part, clearing the junk out of the cupboards. And then um, getting, if you like, almost a bit of practice in doing some recipes, menus, some stuff like that. And the thing that distresses me is there are so many clinical trials that have been done over recent years. Oxford University has done a number, as has Roy Taylor up in Manchester, I'm sorry, up in Newcastle. And they've all consistently shown that compared to standard advice, a sort of rapid weight loss, lowish carb, Mediterranean-style diet always scores better. And indeed, the Oxford Group recently put the NHS weight loss app to the test, where they randomly allocated people to either following that advice or just, um, you know, carrying on as normal. And at the end of eight weeks, there was no difference between the two groups, no significant difference at all. Using the app had made no difference. And when you look at it, Mm -hmm. um, I've looked at the menus on it. I can understand why. 
because they are low in protein, low in fat. They seem to have a lot of sort of um, not what I would call terribly good quality carbs in it. And so it's kind of weird. They spent a lot of money doing this thing, but not evaluating it. And so it was down to the Oxford group to evaluate it. So what a missed opportunity then, actually, isn't it, for a lot of people? So talk through, so you said low fat. A lot of people might think, well, how can you lose weight if you eat fat? So can you explain what that is and also what the Mediterranean diet is? Because as much as we all want to live in the Mediterranean, we can't. So just can you talk us through both of those? Because that would be really interesting. I mean, the last 40 years, we've all been kind of told to spritz olive oil, you know, even not eat eggs. And it's, you know, a generation has grown up on that. And people find it, you know, terrifying that, you know, they buy some decent olive oil and they're scared that they're going to have a heart attack by the time they've finished the bottle. You know, there's so much myths out there. I mean, for example, with olive oil, we know it has anti-inflammatory properties, it reduces certain cancers, lots and lots of benefits, and it makes food taste fantastic. Mm. It makes huge difference. I mean, in terms of the Mediterranean diet, it's, you know, very much bringing in fatty fish, nuts, seeds, pulses, and it's very much about whole foods. Mm. And dairy, bring back in dairy as long as it's not highly processed and hasn't got a lot of, a lot of the dairy we've been eating has all sorts of um, thickeners and sweeteners in it. And it's going back to eating real food. Some Spanish researchers put together an index and you can score yourself. So, you, for example, you get um, one point if your primary fat is olive oil. Uh, you also get points if you eat at least three portions of legumes, that's beans and things like that, a week. The same is true of oily fish. Again, three times a week seems to be a good number. Whole grains. They also, you get a point if you eat at least two portions of fruit and veg a day. And um, things like sitting at the kitchen table or the dining room table. If you sit down to eat at least three times a week, you get a point for that. And you get a point if you um, eat um, sugary, junky, you know, cakes and biscuits less than three times a week. So that's how they kind of score it. You get a score out of 14. And using that index, they're then able to, you know, do all sorts of trials. So, for example, we know that with perimenopausal and menopausal women, those who score highly on the index have much better bones, better strength, uh, less weight, lower risk of heart disease, lower risk of breast cancer, lower risk of cognitive decline. So you can kind of score yourself. And if you're seven and above, you're doing pretty well. Similarly, um, with depression, Mm -hmm. there's been some wonderful research out of Australia, the Food and Mood Centre there, showing that people who um, score well on the Mediterranean diet are around half as great risk of developing depression and anxiety as those who eat a more sort of junk food diet. So we're beginning to understand as well just how fundamental food is for your brain Mm -hmm. as well as your body. And the first proper trials of this were not done until 2017, which makes you kind of weak. Oh, it's shocking, isn't it, really? It really is shocking because I think we've spent the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years using food as a comfort and the food, the way it's advertised, the way how easy it is, it can have short fixed comfort, maybe eating a Mars bar or a bag of chips or whatever, but it's not going to help longer term. And 
it's not until you change your diet or eat healthy you realize how good you can feel but it's quite hard for a lot of people I completely understand and so it's interesting about what we eat and certainly what you're saying is is very clear and I always think about what we eat in the 70s growing up we didn't have any fancy foreign stuff my granddad used to say it's not even foreign it's sort of packaged stuff isn't it if you know what it is you eat we just used to eat plain meat and two veg really when I grew up and full fat milk and we'd all fight over the cream at the top really and butter we didn't have so all these low fat labeled foods are actually not the things we should be reaching for are they no and um, as I said, there are other things which have come in since the 70s, like garlic, which yes. <laughs> I'm a fan of, and yoghurt. I think yeah. I probably had my first yoghurt when I was about 13. Plain yoghurt, again, seems to be a necessary ingredient of the Mediterranean diet. Yeah, so important. Yeah, my mother used to have a yoghurt maker, actually, in the 70s, and uh, we hated it. I have one it. in the cupboard, or rather we have one in the cupboard. Yeah, I use one now, but we used to just hate it. We used to put so much sugar in it, and then it was all right. But actually, that was still probably better than having a sort of low-fat fruit yogurt or whatever. So it's interesting how things have changed. Obviously, olive oil was something I don't think we ever had in our cupboard in the 70s, 80s or 90s, probably. So there are things that are changing, which is great. But the other thing you mentioned at the beginning was the 5-2 diet, which some people might not have heard, you know, the sort of all the time restriction. Do you mind talking with about that? So the 5-2 diet essentially is a rapid weight loss diet. And um, about forty to 50,000 people have so far signed up at the website, fast800.com, and done it. And we've had the data analyzed from that and average weight loss of just under 10 kilos at a year. So we're interested wow. in one-year data because um, obviously you can lose stuff in the short term, but it's kind of how do you do in the long term? And we're also very interested there in looking at the health benefits. So for example, with mm-hmm. the people who came in and were classified as pre-diabetic or type 2 diabetic, around half of them were able to come off medication and are now in remission. And as long as they keep the weight off, they should be well. So these are significant improvements. I'd love to, and we haven't looked at it, try and break it down in terms of menopausal benefits Mm. as well, because we haven't looked at that. But certainly anecdotally, really good for snoring. I used to snore like crazy. (laughs) But essentially, it's a, you start off with a rapid weight loss, around 800 to 1,000 calories a day, mainly sort of lowish carb, mediterranean style diet. And then you graduate to doing it two or three times a week and mm-hmm. then um, as a way of life. And I think the main thing is that the French have a saying that hunger is the best source. So if in the initial stage when you're down 800 to 1,000 calories, you're going to be a bit hungry. And it um, generally passes pretty quickly. But if you're learning to enjoy these foods while you are hungry, then um, this will translate to later. And you'll even if you hate vegetables now, um, you will discover you love vegetables uh, when you've been eating them on a low-calorie diet. I think one of the other things that is very often people go into ketosis, and that's healthy nutritional ketosis. And with that, people often find that they actually have greater clarity and they don't feel so hungry. So I very often had patients saying, you know, I'm just amazed that I'm not feeling hungry all the time because one of the problems when people have metabolic syndrome and they're not getting the feedback, telling them that they're full after meals. And it's not that they're greedy. It's the hormones are out of kilter. And once you start losing the weight and eating better, people find actually they're not constantly craving. And that makes a huge difference to them. And you also sleep better, obviously, once you begin to lose Mm -hmm. weight. And clearly, again, perimenopausal, menopausal, it's um, sleep is going 
dreadfully badly. That's why I went on HRT. It was kind of <laughs> duvet right. on, duvet off, and you know. Yeah, and we know that poor sleep is associated with all these inflammatory diseases, don't we? And so, you know, poor sleep, low hormones, poor diet, obesity. It is a real metabolic car crash, actually, for people. And it's looking at what we can change and what we can't. None of us can reverse our age, but we can reverse our biological age by being more anti-inflammatory. And as you say, Claire, quite rightly, taking HRT, especially with body identical hormones, does reduce that inflammation, reduce risk of all these diseases. But diet is absolutely key, whether people take HRT or not. We all have to eat, we all have to sleep, and we can make a few choices, certainly about eating. But a lot of feedback I get from from friends, actually, as well as patients about your diets and all the recipes is that they're just so easy. And I know that's thanks to you mainly, Claire, isn't it? Yes. Well, I've we have a, a system now of testing and retesting and making sure as much as possible that the ingredients are accessible, mm. they're easy, they're tasty. Because, you know, if you're going to be doing a diet, you don't want to spend ages cooking mm. and faffing around. You want something. I'm busy. I'm impatient. I want to have easy, tasty food that doesn't take long to prepare. And not expensive either, because I think that's really important no, as well, right. isn't it? Absolutely. Yes, we kind of broken down the cost of it and it works out at less than what the average Briton spends on a diet because firstly you're obviously eating less but also the ingredients are all incredibly accessible and things like fish which forms quite a big basis of it it doesn't have to be fresh although that's nice it can be frozen a lot of things like legumes beans are very cheap olive oil extra virgin is more expensive but to be honest you're not going to be gathering gallons of the stuff. So a part of it is just making it incredibly doable so Mm. if you have the ingredients tinned food it's fresh. It's incredibly fresh when it's tinned. It's healthy. As Michael said, fill your freezer, frozen prawns, frozen spinach. Just make life easy for yourself and then you're more likely to stick to it. And the other thing is that um, because you can start with, say, this as a sort of eight or 900 calorie a day dish, but you can, if other members of your family you can just add more stuff. Mm. You pile on the potatoes or the rice or whatever it might be. And um, you also can even squeeze in a few desserts. Not a bad thing, is it? And Not a bad thing. You know, you like this. I like desserts, exactly. <laughs> It, it is important because, I mean, I, I don't eat meat and my children do. So I'm always cooking twice. You know, I've just always done it. But to have meals that you can chop and change and add and also you can vary so you can make double and then you've got two or three meals, you know, because everyone's busy. And I think people forget, actually, I quite enjoy cooking because it's a time that I can't have my phone <laughs> on because I can't chop and use my phone I use it it's quite a meditative process actually and so even if someone said to me look I can deliver food for you every day that's fresh I think I would turn it down because I quite like the ritualistic behavior I don't like going food shopping but I have food delivered it just it's so easy isn't it through supermarkets and actually that way I used to go shopping when I was hungry and then I'd always buy the wrong food. So ordering it online, like you say, and I think that's really clear, Michael, that we have to clear out our cupboards. You know, this, I know when I was a student, I just used to have cups of tea and biscuits all the time when I was hungry. And, you know, if you don't have biscuits in your cupboards, it's more of an effort, isn't it, to go and buy them? Absolutely. And you need perhaps some walnuts or some mm. almonds or something like that. A small handful of nuts I find satisfying. Other sort of snack things, Claire? I mean, a bit of cheese. Yes. That's surprisingly filling and you don't need very much. 
I'm a big fan of herbal teas. Again, kind of, you know, mm. uh, quite often uh, when you think you're hungry, you're just a bit bored or <laughs> you're a bit thirsty or something like that. So you have a cup of herbal tea and the craving for something in your mouth, if you like, goes away. And that's sufficient. It doesn't have to be a chocolate bar. Fortunately, we live at least a mile away from the nearest shop. So if I'm really desperate, I know I'm going to have to cycle down the hill, cycle up the hill again. And <laughs> the craving is often passed by the time that's passed. Mm. And then with time restricted eating, so the five two is great for the more rapid weight loss, as you say, and the eight hundred calories. But what about sort of trying to get all the time you eat into a shorter time in the twenty four hour period? Absolutely. So as part of the Fast Eight Hundred program, we also recommend you have a go at time restricted eating. And I um, first came across this in two thousand and twelve. It's the brainchild of a professor at the Salk Institute, uh, Professor Panda. And sometimes people call it 12, 12, 14, 10, 16, 8. But essentially all it means is you try to stop eating earlier in the evening and delay your breakfast by a bit. So, for example, if you were to stop eating at 8 o'clock at night and then not eat again until 8 o'clock the next morning, that would be 12 hours of time-restricted eating. And I chat regularly with Professor Panda. He reckons probably 14, 10 is optimal. He also thinks the best benefits or the most benefits come from stopping eating earlier in the evening. Mm. So he actually stops eating about 6 p.m. and doesn't eat again until 8 a.m. That's 14.10. And that's the protocol for much of his research. But there are multiple reasons why this is beneficial, not least of which is that having that late night snack is often the undoing of a lot of people. You know, a bit of this, a bit of that. I might have a biscuit. I might do that. And you've suddenly, you know, knocked back 400 calories without even Mm. thinking it. And you're doing it at a time of day or rather night, which is biologically not good because you are sticking food in your face at a time when your body is trying to close down for the night. And that also seems to be the circadian rhythm seems to be Mm. important. Uh, There was a study which he told me about where they looked at women with breast cancer recurrence risk, and they found that those who were eating late at night, they had a greater risk of breast cancer recurrence. Interesting, isn't it? And again, I wonder how much is related to this inflammation, but also about there is something about resting the pancreas, isn't it? You know, the pancreas shouldn't be churning out insulin all the time. And there's more spikes, isn't there, with certain types of food? Absolutely. Also, you want to rest your gut because your gut takes a tremendous pounding. And um, I sometimes compare it to like a motorway. You can't repair the motorway if you've got the traffic churning down it. But you're absolutely right. Constantly just getting those big blood sugar spikes will ultimately lead you probably to prediabetes and ultimately perhaps to diabetes. So uh, once upon a time, you were referring to the 70s, you know, kids would basically go out and play and they didn't have snacks all the time. Now, the eating opportunities are so much greater that people just eat all the time. And it's incredibly frustrating. There's so much confusing information out there about diets. So, you know, still people are being recommended to eat three meals and then to snack in between you know around 11 in the afternoon and then before they go to bed and that's six you know they're never Mm. that's never recovering and you're always in a pool of rising sugar yeah which obviously the trick is really I think is to eat food that once you eat and enjoy it you're not thinking about it till your next meal satiating and that's when you need particularly the protein and some healthy fats because then you you don't feel hungry well that's exactly right isn't it and I mean I get migraines so if I don't eat it will always trigger a migraine or if I eat the wrong things you know if I ate um 
a Mars bar and a packet of crisps now, I can guarantee I'll get a migraine later. So it's great for me because I know I can't eat those foods. <laughs> but, but for other people, it's not so easy. But actually, if you think about what it's doing to your body, like you say, to your gut, to your pancreas, to your future health, then it is worth, there should be more sort of health warnings, I think, on some of these foods. Um, I was on the train coming back from London yesterday and there was a really healthy looking lady. The train was going up to Edinburgh. She had all her hiking stuff. She sat down, she was just in front of me and then she had her diet Pepsi. She had her, and it was a big packet of crisps. It even said larger size, something on it and her bought sandwich. And I thought, oh, that's a shame. She's lovely and young. She looks really fit and she's getting away with it now. But maybe, you know, like, you, no disrespect, Michael, you know, Time catches up, doesn't it, if you don't? It has. Well caught up. No catches, <laughs> has caught. Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, we can't blame our metabolism because we all say, oh, it's because my metabolism mm. is slowing down. There's actually very little evidence that between the ages of 16 and 65, your metabolism genuinely slows down. What happens is you become less active and unfortunately you eat a lot more junk. Yeah. And tragically, because I recently made a series for Channel 4 on this, apps and things like that are make it so much easier to just order up junk food. Yes. And uh, we know that on average when you get a takeaway, you consume twice as many calories as when you cook it yourself. So that's something bearing in mind when you order up the next pizza. And I do think that it's basically the industrialized junk food, which is largely responsible for the fact that we Brits are the second fattest in Europe after Malta. The Maltese blame it on fish and chips, which they say they've got on us. And I think we are the fifth fattest in the world, highest rates of obesity. And we love our, you know, takeaways and our junk food. And mm. that's something you kind of have to battle with. And like you, we're huge fans of cooking stuff yourself. Mm. And, um, yeah, I'm fortunate that I have somebody sitting right beside me here who is uh, just lovely at kind of conjuring up different. I have to use recipe books. Claire just invents stuff. Yeah, which is a great, but I think we can all learn. And I think, yeah, ending on that very awful statistic, thinking about how fat we are as a nation and how individually we can all make a difference, but not just to ourselves, I think to our friends and our relatives and our family and anyone that we can cook for and preach to a bit. All these things have a little effect. So I'm really hoping the podcast today has just made people stop and think about little ways that they can change. So just before we end, I'd really like three take-home tips. I don't know how you're going to do two and one maybe. Okay. About Claire. just easy ways. People are going to be feeling a bit overwhelmed and a bit maybe guilty because their diet won't be as good as we've been talking. So what three things would be good for them to make a start to continue in a way they want to go I'm not sure whether this is the sort of tip you're looking for but what I would say is enjoy your olive oil mm. it makes food taste fantastic it keeps you full it's anti-inflammatory don't spritz the oil plug it great that's a great Thank number one you. tip I'm um, oily fish I, ne I never was a fan of fish but there's so much good evidence for the benefits of um, they call it smash so that salmon mackerel anchovies <laughs> and I, I can't remember what the other ones are but uh, kippers herring um, so essentially the oily fish lots of recipes um, Claire also has an Instagram account where you can follow her recipes but lots of wonderful things you can do with fish and fish is more sustainable. It has a lower environmental impact than meat as well. So if you're not a vegetarian, yeah, oily fish, pile it on. Great. And number three? Don't know who's going to do that. Number three, what would we say? I think one thing is probably don't snack. Yeah. That really does help make a difference. If you're eating Mediterranean-style diet, you won't need to 
snack anyway. Or if Hopefully. you do snack, go for, you know, nuts, almonds and things like that. Mm. Yeah, and so don't... I think hard not to snack, I have to say. No, I, that's really hard. But don't snack at night time, in the evening, I think is a really key message from what you're saying. So if we are going to snack, just preload ourselves, do it in the day. Absolutely. Um, so oh, I'm so grateful for your time. It's been really energetic, lovely podcast and lots of nuggets of really useful information. So thanks so much for your time today. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you. For more information about the perimenopause and menopause please visit my website, balance-menopause.com or you can download the free Balance app, which is available to download from the App Store or from Google Play. Music